0: Hey guys, let me tell you about today's sponsor, and that's Surfshark VPN, the official VPN of the American History Podcast. A VPN is a tool that improves your online privacy and protects you from hackers. How? It basically acts as a shield and hides your IP address, so everything you do online stays private, whether it would be reading the news, streaming some shows, listening to podcasts, you name it. I can tell you personally, I never get online without my Surfshark VPN. Plus, if you use a VPN, you can virtually travel the world from the comfort of your own home. And Surfshark will give you 100 countries to choose from. Once you change your virtual location, you'll be able to bypass censorship and restrictions, find your favorites on Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, or other streaming services, and even access new libraries to watch even more content. Can't see a YouTube video because of your location? Use Surfshark VPN. Can't access that one website to buy a limited edition sneakers? Use Surfshark VPN. Try Surfshark Today, totally risk-free with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Get Surfshark VPN at Surfshark.deals slash American History. Enter promo code American History for an 83% discount plus three additional months of protection for free. Yes, you heard right. 83% off. Once again, go to Surfshark.deals/slash American History. And use promo code American History for 83% off and three extra months for free. Okay, let's get back into the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 18, Ramping Up the War Effort, Part 2. Okay, so in our last episode, we spoke a little bit about how the United States ramped up war production, or at least began the process of ramping up war production. Now, this episode will take us deeper into that story. And what a story it is! Honestly, we could have spent many more than just two episodes detailing the way the United States ramped up war production. But the reality is, we don't need that much of a deep dive. We just want to have a decent understanding, and I believe these two episodes give us the right balance. Episode 4.18 looks at a gentleman named Henry Kaiser and how he came to be an important figure in this story. But before we do that, we need to jump into our time machine and head back to the late 19th century when he was born. So join me and let's jump in our time machine. To help us, we have this week's Song of the Week. And this song is The Streets of New York by Billy Murray. I think we've had him before. And it comes to us via the Free Music Archive. I'll see you in just a few minutes.
1: They're differing quite in the different parts of town In old New York, in old New York, the feet dropped That doesn't cut any ice on the bowery every night till broad daylight. They dance and sing and talk. The girls are all game and they're jolly good fellows. They're not very swell, but they're.
0: Okay, so one of the ways the United States was able to win or help win the war against Nazi Germany and fascist Japan was through its ability to simply outproduce its opponents. As the British, amongst others, were aware, the United States could easily outpace the production capacity of Germany. Here's British economist Sir William Layton talking in 1940. The way Germany's steel output can be outpaced or overwhelmed, he said, is by the, quote, 50 to 60 million ingot tons or ingot tons of the United States. End quote. In fact, in 1941, the United States produced more steel, aluminum, oil, and motor vehicles than all of the other major states combined. Now, the problem, of course, was how to turn peacetime production towards war. How to get the vast industrial capacity of the United States and, instead of using it to produce consumer goods, turn it instead to producing war material. The United States had no tradition of a military industry. Um, Unlike today, there was no military-industrial complex to speak of. The American public, as had been the case for most of its history, had a deep-seated hostility towards war and militarism. And by 1941, when the United States entered the war, it was facing a daunting prospect. Both Japan and Germany had been devoting vast portions of their GDP to militarism. But overcome these deficiencies they did. Now, by the end of the war, American industry provided almost two-thirds of all Allied military equipment that was produced in the war. 297,000 aircraft, 193,000 artillery pieces, 86,000 tanks, 2 million trucks. The naval figures were just as impressive and not more so. 8,800 ships were produced, as well as 87,000 landing craft. Now, as we mentioned last time in January 1942, William Knudsen was appointed uh, by President Roosevelt to lead the rearmament agency the Office of Production Management. Rather than order businessmen to produce X or Y, he resorted to reading out a long list of military products and simply asked for volunteers to get to work making them. There was a genius in this method, believe it or not. Um, Bill, as he was known, knew his fellow businessmen did not like taking orders, but they loved a challenge. So he laid out the challenges, and they decided which ones they wanted to take on. Now, one of the misconceptions that some people had, and I'd say it's still out there, is that an economy can change over from peacetime to wartime easily. It's like they think all you have to do is flip a switch. Now, the reality is that it's not that easy. But that attitude was out there in early 1940. The U.S. Army even had a term for it, M-Day, or Mobilization Day. They thought if they just issued the orders, bam, the goods would start arriving the next day. Bill Knudsen, however, knew better. The M-Day thing was pure fantasy. No allowance was given for what he would have termed lead-up time, the time needed for a conversion of the economy. Factories could not simply start stop making cars, I should say, tonight, and then start making airplanes tomorrow. He felt the lead time needed was 18 months. Now, to make matters worse, when he met with the military, he never got the sort of answers that he needed. He would ask them, so what do you want? And they'd respond with something like, well, we want an army of 400,000 men equipped and provisioned within three months of M-Day, and then another 800,000 within a year. I need to know what kind of equipment you need for these men, and how many. So please tell me, how many pieces? But that was the problem. They themselves did not know either. After meeting General George C. Marshall, Knudsen realized what they needed was time. And the Navy? It was much the same. In a strange way, the military men were waiting for him to tell them what the economy could produce and how much of it they could make. The politicians, the generals, the admirals, none of them was truly willing to take the lead, surprisingly. Um, Thus, American business and industry would have to figure this out on its own. So here's the thing. Knudsen believed that without the absurd economic restrictions imposed on industry in the 1930s, it not only could, but would rise to the challenge— Quote, industry in the United States does more for the country in direct or indirect contributions to the public wealth than in any other country on earth, end quote. And when you think about it, Knudsen was more than right. But that brings us to the question that Bill faced. After his first meeting with Marshall, he was up late that night in his hotel room, legal pad and pen in hand. My wife would be quite proud of him. She loves legal pads. He now realized the military men, at least when it came to thinking about production, were primitive at best. They didn't even think about things like economies of scale. They just thought that if a soldier needed X amount of cotton for his uniform, two soldiers needed twice as much. They were thinking in units of one. However, Knudsen understood that everything from uniforms to rifles would be affected by economies of scale, and thus such thinking was, at best, ludicrous. He realized the first thing needed was to get started on weapons that had a long cycle in the manufacturing process. That would be things like ships. Airplanes, guns, smokeless powder, and TNT. The next thing was working on items with a shorter production cycle, things like trucks and clothing, food, and small arms like rifles. Then you had to assemble a team who understood the dynamic of mass production. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a First Lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, some of the names he came up with were Edward Stettinus, chairman of of U.S. Steel, and his deputy, Donald Nelson, the former president of Sears Roebuck, and currently in charge of the NDAC's materials division. Next was John D. Biggers, president of Libby Owens Glass. After that, Harold Vance, chairman of Studebaker, a company known for having some of the best engineers in the auto industry. There were other names as well, like Bill Harrison, the head of construction for American Telephone and Telegraph. But the last name was perhaps the most important, or certainly no less than any other. That was Admiral Jerry Land, chairman of the U.S. Maritime Commission, a man who had a vast understanding of America's shipyards and whose job it was to oversee perhaps the biggest project of the war, building up America's merchant shipping fleet. Now, unlike World War I, when the lack of adequate merchant fleet meant the growing supplies headed for Europe often sat stuck on a pier in the port, Knudsen was determined to not let this happen. Thus, shipbuilding the needs of both the Navy and the Merchant Marine would remain his highest priority throughout the war. Today's show is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're a bit overwhelmed by all the teeth whitening products on the market. Smile Brilliant has given me some very interesting facts to pass on to you. Fact number one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary from person to person, but for most of us, it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone. Fact number two, Teeth whitening doesn't damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate them. Now, when they're dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we know, lead to tooth decay. So, avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also, avoid staining substances, as the teeth at this time are more susceptible to being restained. Fact number three, tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. And when the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application, known as remineralization, or a desensitizing gel. Fact number four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they don't have pores for the stains to latch onto. So, prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color, as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact number five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without an eruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and the molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky and they don't create a seal. Oh, and if you uh, likely did not know this, but uh, the LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist, so don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one at Amazon for less than $5. Now, the number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you can head over to www.smilebrilliant.com. And use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price that you'd pay at the dentist. And if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom-fitted night guards once again for a fraction of the price the dentists charge. Head over to SmileBrilliant.com and use coupon code American for an incredible discount available only to listeners of the show. Another important figure in this story was Henry Kaiser, the youngest son of an immigrant German shoemaker. Henry was the opposite of his father. He, uh, the elder was a hard-working, precise man who loved a little, qu- quiet, orderly life that he had made for himself while his son was an exuberant little boy. In school, the young man tormented his teachers. He was restless, funny, and relentlessly curious, always looking for a way to bend the rules. I bet that in today's world he'd be a candidate for Ritalin. Believing, as he later said, he was ready to take on the world, Henry dropped out at the age of 13. While his family wanted him to have an education, he wanted to get out there and make money. By 16, he was a traveling salesman in the employment of D.R. Wells Dry Goods. Now, much to everyone's surprise, Henry turned out to be a hard-working and reliable employee. Before long, Henry got involved in photography, and he even owned a studio for a time. His idea for a chain failed, but the young man wasn't going to quit. At the age of 24, engaged and still looking to make his fortune, he did what many Americans before him had done. He headed out west. Kaiser arrived in Spokane, Washington, knowing no one. Now, at first, it looked like he was going to fail. He talked to each and every business owner looking for a job, but no one hired him. Again, unperturbed, the would-be entrepreneur changed tactics. He decided to focus his attention on one owner, and the lucky owner was James C. McGowan, owner of McGowan Brothers Hardware. A fire had recently swept through the business, and thousands of dollars had been ruined. McGowan, flustered by Kaiser, shouted, "'Don't you see I'm almost ruined? How am I going to hire anyone new?' Kaiser, his ever-present smile firmly planted on his face, said, "'Let me see if I can salvage something.' He did just that. Getting a few local women to assist, probably taken in by his smile and charm, they polished the fire-damaged goods, until they were almost new. McGowan was impressed and hired Henry on wages of $7 a week. Soon, Kaiser showed him he was worth far more than that. He arrived at work long before the store opened, and he was there past closing. Before long, even the more experienced clerks uh, asked Henry the location and price of goods, and when Kaiser proposed that he become McGowan's traveling salesman, the owner was more than happy to say yes. He turned rakes and tools Into a veritable fountainhead of wealth. He secured major wholesale deals with construction companies across the region. Working 12 to 15 hours a day began to pay off. Henry purchased a home on 418 Fourth Avenue. He was able to return back east and marry his lady love. Unbelievably, it took Kaiser all of 10 months to turn his fortunes in Spokane around. A year after he purchased his first home, he purchased lots for a bigger one. He was now making about $250 a month or the equivalent of $7,500 a month in today's money. Then on the eve of his first child being born, Henry bought a Ford Model T. Kaiser continued to move up in pay. And by 1910, he was making over um, $250,000 a year in today's money. That's a lot of money. He was no longer with McGowan, but he moved to Hawkeye Fuel Company. And we could go on and on. And the story of Henry Kaiser is a fascinating one, to be sure. Suffice it to say that he continued to rise up the ranks of America's entrepreneurs to become one of its most famous men. By the mid 1920s, he'd left Washington and moved his operation to California. He was a hard worker and expected the same out of his employees. They respected him because while he was involved in all aspects of the business and he double checked everything, he never blew up when he found you were in error. The only time he did explode was when someone lied to him. He never told people to do this or that. What he did was use questions to draw out the response he wanted. This was the secret, or second secret to his success, his first one being his ability to work just as hard, if not harder than anyone else. His third secret? It was probably the most important aspect to his success. He built close relationships with state, local, and even federal government officials. It was in this vein that Kaiser having heard of the government's idea to dam the Colorado River, approached several other men to pool their money and bid on the contract. Now, the first person he approached was Warren Bechtel, who had been building roads and buildings in San Francisco since before the Great Earthquake of 1905. Eventually, he had his partners, dubbed the six companies, and construction began in 1931 and finished in 1935. Now, the lesson Kaiser learned from this was that it was important to keep government officials, even the ones who were antagonistic to you, close. He learned this thanks to Harold Ickes, FDR Secretary of the Interior, a New Deal true believer. He often clashed with the entrepreneur, who'd moved to Washington, D.C. at this time to be closer to government, over things like unionizing his workers. Kaiser said that instead of giving them a union card, he'd give them a good wage. Ickes demanded that Kaiser use the job to help with the product problem of unemployment. Kaiser responded he needed people who could work and who knew the job, not just folks who were willing to show up for a payday. Ickes wanted every federal safety regulation rigorously enforced. Kaiser was willing to do that. If Ickes understood, that meant the project would never be completed. By the time work was wrapping up on the dam, Kaiser was moving on to his next big project, another dam out west, actually two, on the Columbia River, the Bonneville and Grand Coulee Dams. And by the fall of 1940, production was ramping up. Uh, Production on one-fifth of the total planes ordered by Congress had begun. The Army, 250,000 members, was about to get a boost thanks to the draft. It would shortly expand to over a million men. Detroit announced annual auto changes would be halted. The reason? It was beginning to switch over to war production. But there were problems which would still have to be overcome. For example, the average car at that time had perhaps 15,000 separate parts. However, a twin-engine bomber like the B-25 had 165,000 parts and about 150,000 rivets. There was not a single existing auto plant in the country capable of producing such a complex machine, much less making 500 a day of various sizes and weights. Needless to say, Bill Knudsen and the rest of his team, well, they did figure this out. But I want to get back to Henry Kaiser. By 1941, he had begun building ships and ships were needed. Funny enough, the British approached Kaiser in California. Kaiser took them to Richmond, California, and showed them a series of mudflats. They were dumbfounded. Where were his shipyards? Right here, he said. Within months, there will be a new shipyard here, and it will be making your ships. Before long, a contract was drawn up for not one, but two shipyards, and they'd be the most famous in the world. For it was here that Henry Kaiser and his people built the Liberty ships. At one point, his shipyards, and he actually built more, were turning out one Liberty ship in an average of 45 days, and victory ships were built in an incredible, I can't believe this, four days. Needless to say, Japan would find it difficult to match this. Actually, no one could match what the Americans were about to achieve when it came to the sheer amount of planes, tanks, ships, and weapons that they were producing. 2,710 Liberty ships were produced, with two rolling off the production line every three days at the at one point. Over 500 of the bigger and faster victory ships were also produced. All of this enabled the United States to overwhelm the Japanese by 1945. But we aren't there yet. Sadly, this is all I've got for you today. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this show, and if you did, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. Now, if you have a minute... Then please take the time to drop a couple of sentences in the way of a five-star review. That sort of things, those sorts of things help others find us, but it also tells the advertisers that we're doing a good job. Now until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to episode 4.18, Ramping Up the War Effort, Part 2. And we'll see you all again soon. of wondering who shut was shut it off for